Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Behind the Scene, a conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. Today, it's just me. Well, actually, that's not true. It's just me for the first couple of minutes. Uh, I've actually moved out to Los Angeles for at least the summer, Um, and so uh, Brandon and I, we haven't really sorted out our schedule yet, what that would look like. So what we decided to do was to replay one of our favorite episodes from last season, dealing with fear and how we can kind of use fear as a guidepost for uh, knowing which direction we should take life and um, or, or go in life. And um, it's, uh, an, I guess, something that's been popping up a lot in conversations with friends, a lot of friends experiencing fear. It's something I've seen a lot of people talking about on Facebook. Fear is something that I know that I've experienced a lot in the last few weeks. And so there seems to be just this widespread season of fear that everybody is walking in. And so, uh, like I said, specifically for me, the last few weeks, walking in fear or, or experiencing fear as it related to my move, because I, I came out here to work with a friend for at least the summer. Uh, so that required me to quit my job, which had pretty good pay, pretty good benefits. It was doing exactly what I wanted to do when I left uh, college with a journalism degree, which was overseeing my own publication. And so there was a certain amount of security in that. Uh, and anytime security is disrupted, you're, you're definitely going to experience fear. And so um, in in leading up to this, I guess I just had to, to kind of have faith that uh, this is what I was, I guess, supposed to do or wanted to do. Because uh, it is kind of a career pivot away from journalism. I'm still going to be creating content. That's the goal. But I also want to develop the podcast more. And uh, I'm going to be doing some business administration and production type stuff with my friend out here in Los Angeles. Um, but in September, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen then? Um, I also had friends and community in D.C. That I, that I hated to leave. And so just a lot of unknown there. And so the way fear can manifest itself in an unhealthy way uh, is it can induce anxiety, it can induce rage, it can induce control. Uh, and in actually a conversation that I had with my pastor, Bill Rydell of Redemption Hill Church before I left, uh, he pulled up a chart with uh, a list of emotions and the corresponding unhealthy manifestation of that emotion, uh, and then what it could look like if you move into, I guess, giftedness or take control of that emotion. And so that's kind of what I'm looking at as I'm talking through what what this fear is. Uh, there's also, you know, sadness, which can turn into self-pity, uh, or it can turn into acceptance. Um, loneliness can become apathy, uh, or we can take loneliness and we can turn it into in- intimacy, and not necessarily intimacy regarding just like, you know, physical relationships, but actual intimacy with friendships, um, to get to know them on, on deeper levels and, and things like that. And so this is actually, this feelings chart uh, is created by someone called Chip Dodd uh, from The Voice of the Heart. And so we'll probably link to it in the show notes. Uh, but that's what we're talking about today. And, and how does it relate to the racial conversation, except, again, looking at fear, looking at this chart, and how does it manifest in an unhealthy way is through anxiety, control, or rage. And if you talk about white privilege or if you talk about racism or racial bias one of the things that uh, white 
white people will respond with is is out of anger and um and so again if you point to the corresponding emotion it's fear and so i think that you know this could be an an entire blog post on its own but like what are what are we afraid of as white people um and it's probably just the the fact that something in our life is going to have to change some sort of behavior in our life is going to have to change by being by pointing out white privilege or pointing out racial bias and so uh we like status quo we like some sort of predictability in our lives and anytime there's disruption to that there's going to be some fear around it so that's what we're talking about today and uh i'm going to cut back to that earlier recording now you know if if you think about you know the idea of fight or flight you know fear can save your life <laughs> you know um our reactivity you know um in our bodies our physiology you know keeps us from engaging in harmful things if you think about when you're a child and you know maybe you touch the hot stove and uh, that reaction to the heat um, the extraordinary heat you learn (laughs) you know through pain to not do that again hopefully the first time sometimes (laughs) you need multiple times to 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 really do that but um, what we learn um, through pain in that circumstance can be a healthy fear it's a healthy fear of avoiding um, heat um, that is not that we shouldn't be experiencing in our bodies Um, and uh, the converse of that is that you know fear of um, of people hurting you all of the time you know because one person hurt you is something that we experience commonly as as adults that if we've been hurt one time then most relationships in our life will end the same way you know that's a a negative um, like expression of fear um, or a negative belief that's come from fear so um, fear in and of itself is just at its substance it is just an emotion and like most like all emotions are neither good nor evil they are simply what they are it is our relationship to those emotions and in particular to fears we're talking about today our relationship to fear is what dictates whether it is uh, whether there's a positive outcome or a negative outcome um, to um, to that experience um, so uh, yeah I I think um, you know as I've worked you know with uh, kids and adults over the years I see you know kids with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder you know who I am learning to teach them how to overcome their fears Um, at the same time there are certain things that I want to help them to avoid (laughs) I want them to avoid making risky decisions um, making uh, the risky choices that are um, not good for their bodies you know um, uh, for some kids if they've experienced trauma they become um, really engaging in, 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 in high-risk type of sexual things and, and activities. And, and I want to teach them, you know, that um, they are avoiding pain by actually engaging in that activity. Um, so even though the, the behavior is high-risk, they're actually avoiding pain by not <laughs> resisting that. Um, so um, anyway, so the psychology of all of it is, is, is pretty deep. And, um, but the general uh, thing I think that we should know and learn is that Fear is something that we have to be curious about within ourselves. We have to um, strive to understand it, to acknowledge that we have it, and then take responsibility for how we're engaging with ourselves and with our relationships and family, homework, all of them, you know, when it comes to um, how we manage it. Yeah, and we've talked a little bit about in past episodes, uh, counseling and, and how I'm a big advocate for everyone to experience it and 
Uh, I've gone through some counseling myself, and one of the the single greatest thing that I took out of that was learning that these emotions, these things that I was feeling, anxieties or fear or whatever, weren't good or bad, and they're just signals that uh, your body or uh, thing, your brain is trying to tell you, and if you can observe them and mm-hmm. you know just look at them without judgment, uh, then you can really kind of discern what it is that you're trying to be told and then how to take action from that um and and i think that as adults too that we you know growing up you've mentioned that there are some kids who experience traumatic situations and and i think probably stunts growth or growth in a lot of ways because i think back to my own childhood and i think that this is pretty typical uh because learning and pressing through fear is required for learning um, you know, I think about going through school and trying new things, new sports, uh, going to college. Uh, these are all, you know, starting your first job. These are all things that are pressing into fear because we have to. You know, there's a certain thing, a status that we want to achieve or there's certain comforts that we want to pursue. And I've talked to so many people and friends who out of college, they kind of don't know what to do, right? Like your life has been structured up into that point yeah. and you're pressing through fear. And then we get to a point as adults where we're trying to inoculate ourselves from it and we're trying to to live a life that's super comfortable and um, that doesn't involve fear. And I think that that's probably, you know, if you're talking about you get to 25 or 30 and then you stop experiencing that, like what does that do for our growth? And so um, we we kind of think that we've arrived in a sense and, and kind of stop evolving. And then when we're confronted with the fear in in the pain avoidance in life and in society and in doing life together if we have we've stopped leaning into it then that can create conflict in in the race conversation like we're talking about now which is why we have the podcast uh and then in a number of ways we'll talk about a little bit more how to navigate them in this in this episode like in the workplace and in home Uh, but one area that has blown up and has made us confront it is in the nfl kneeling uh colin kaepernick um kneeling and the new nike campaign that he's got from that uh so that's one area where we're all kind of everybody has an opinion on this and it's exerting some signals that we're all responding to and out of fear uh, right brandon you and i have talked about that so what's what's going on with that in the in the kneeling yeah situation? it's so interesting i mean we'll you know the the slogan in and of itself you know, is, uh, is, um, you know, so controversial for people mm-hmm. that we don't, um, there's such a reactivity to, um, what we're feeling and thinking, you know, in such a large way, but I'm just going to read the slogan and then we'll get into a little bit, you know? So if you haven't seen it, this is a picture of Colin, Kaepernick with his afro um, and a black and white photograph with these words sort of inscribed at the bottom um, of the photograph. Um, Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. So here's what's going on. You have people that are reacting to that, like we call them the Colin Kaepernick side, you know, who were saying, absolutely, that makes sense. You know, you have the right to kneel. Um, The NFL has um, like agreed, you know, to... um, to, to, to go through these um, like investigations about how Colin Kaepernick has been treated. Um, he hasn't been able to find a job really within the context of playing football, you know, since this whole scandal started. 
And, you know, people are on his side on this. You know, they say he sacrificed a lot in order to kneel and to take a stand against police brutality and other race relations issues. Um, that's what people are saying on his side of the argument. Now, on the other side, you have people who are saying that other folks have sacrificed more. Um, people in the military have sacrificed more. That's the main argument. And why shouldn't, why didn't Nike put in there as, as the face of this slogan, you know, a Marine, you know, um, or, you know, someone who's actually gone to war and then uh, really served and suffered um, for the cause of patriotism. Um, you know, so here's, here's really what I think. You guys can't see me. I'm kind of like grabbing my head right now yeah. and grabbing my eyes. And there's just, this is just so deep. And, um, and oftentimes I just feel like it doesn't need to be deep. You know what I mean? I think that, you know, I think about Trevor Noah, if you listen to his response to this circumstance, you know, he just said, um, you know, in like response to the people that are burning their Nikes, <laughs> you know, um, in response to this campaign, you know, he goes, you know, that Nike already has your money, right? And the first thing that I thought of is like, not only do they already have your money, but some of the people who are probably burning their Nikes um, and then taking photographs of it or videos of it um, are probably going to go out and buy more Nikes after it's done. It's like really insane hypocrisy. I can't prove that that's what they're doing, but I'm pretty sure it's probably what they're doing, you know, because what other brand are you going to go to? You know, I mean, there's something very unique about Nikes. You bought them for a reason. You're going to go get Converse now. <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to do? Probably not. So um, my guess is that a lot of this is, is, is pop and circumstance. You know, for some people, they're not actually committed, you know, to boycotting Nike. But let's just say, for instance, that someone is um, uh, a group of people. But let's just take one person. Let's say it's Mark Bauer, um, who was really interested in burning his Nikes. And has he, he has not, I don't believe, burned his not, Nikes. I have not burned my Nikes. He has not. Okay, Mark has not burned his Nikes. We're in good company. I haven't burned mine either. Um, uh, that would really confuse people if I started burning my Nikes, I think. But, um, you know, what what is causing people to have this visceral response, really? You know, what is causing the, the vitriol? Um, obviously, there's a stimulus. There is the ad. Um, there is Colin Kaepernick's face, the story behind the whole thing, right? So one could say that people are angry because we're in defense of veterans. We're in defense of people that have actually paid a cost for this country, and Colin Kaepernick hasn't done anything. Well, that's what people are saying. But then my question is, well, who knows Colin Kaepernick that's making that claim? No one knows anything about his life. No one knows anything about the, the suffering that he's endured in his life. And I guarantee you that all people are going through some kind of suffering and some kind of pain. And um, and I don't just mean that as a therapist. Um, I mean that just as a human. I know that about people. I know that about my friends. I know that I'm sure you guys too. Anyone who's listening knows that about your family members or about yourself. And if anyone came and said about me that my suffering was less relevant than another person's suffering, that would probably be offensive to me. So what would compel a person to say that about someone else who they do not know? And my theory is this, um, is that fear is behind the whole thing. I think that if you are white or on the football side of things where you say, do not kneel, sing the national anthem without contest, um, that um, if you don't do that, then then you are a un 
unpatriotic or as, you know, some were called sons of bitches or whatever, that that's what you are. And I think that there's just a generalizable fear around this conversation around race. Um, there's a fear around learning something different about your opponent that actually humanizes them to the point where they're not your opponent any longer. Mm -hmm. There's something in the psychology or in the psyche of us that wants to burn our Nikes, something that we possess. We own it. We paid for it already in protest of something that you have literally no knowledge about. You haven't even asked someone on the other side of the question or on the, on the, on the other side of their argument, why do you do what you do? Why do you believe what you do? And the reason why is because we're completely avoidant. Some are avoidant of having the conversation at all um, for any number of reasons. Um, I can speculate and say that one of the reasons is, um, is that it's painful to consider that um, if you are a football lover who happens to be white and doesn't want to see that happen, doesn't want to see Colin Kaepernick kneel, that it's messing with your football, which we hear. Football is for Sundays, and I just want to leave it alone. Don't mess with it. Do something else. You can have your protest. Just do it somewhere else. And that sounds like entitlement to me. It sounds like you want to have control over what it is that you see um, um, on a Sunday and what happens when you don't have control, right? You don't have control. What's the first thing that comes up personally for you? Fear. You fear not being able to actually have control over the thing that you love, over the thing you want to do. Um, and that's just an example. I, I, I think it goes a little bit deep, a lot deeper than, than that, <laughs> you know, but um, in, in, in terms of what the real like psychosis of fear is, you know, but um, generally speaking, I, I uh, well, not even so generally speaking, maybe I'll just say it, you know, I, I think that white people are afraid. This is a generalization that white people can be afraid of what a confrontation to their white privilege means yeah. and what it can look like and what it can feel like. And what Colin Kaepernick kneeling does, it, it, is, it can be for some, and I think it is this, a confrontation to white privilege that makes white people feel very uncomfortable. Now, I say that saying, if I were Colin Kaepernick, I would not be choosing to kneel, but that's me because I have a different me methodology around which I like to approach the conversation. That doesn't mean that I have an opinion at all Honestly, I don't actually know if his strategy is efficacious. I don't know. Um, but does he have the right, as far as the Constitution is concerned, to do it? Maybe, perhaps, yeah. probably. So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, you talked about understanding the, the other side's perspective and humanizing them. And um, there's a certain amount of reactivity that's coming out of it. And on, on both, both sides, especially with the Nike burning, and I think that it is coming out of a place of fear. But for both sides, and one of the reasons that anybody reacts out of this is we've talked about in past episodes, your identity is wrapped up in that. And when your identity is challenged, then you mm -hmm. attack whatever it is that's highlighting mm -hmm. that or confronting or challenging it and saying, no, you're wrong. Um, don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. And, and a lot of that, I think, is coming out of some patriotism where we were confronted with this binary choice and i don't even understand really why we've taken the stance you know that we have um but and and in talking with some people i kind of understand a little bit more 
how some identity is wrapped up in that and why some people would be opposed to the kneeling and please you know, tell me yeah and sure like <laughs> um you know it you might want to watch your football and just be like oh there's so much politics and so many things i just wish that we could keep politics out of this sunday leisurely activity that's supposed to just you know i'm supposed to be able to kick back and watch football without being confronted with this like i'm bombarded with it in the news all the time i just want this alone time so i get that but in in the same sense it's also working it's agitating something in you and making confronting yep. you with it so right. in that way it's working and so if you want it to go away confront it and engage with it and say okay is there something there i think that mm -hmm. that's probably the best way to go and again with you i'm not saying whether that's good or bad or the right thing to do but just from looking at it from the context of what is it trying to achieve it's 100 percent achieving what it is supposed to it's I agitating agree. Yeah. Um, but so going back to like what it is that people are kind of reacting out of. Hi, this is Mark. Sorry to interject here in editing. One of the things that Brandon and I set out to do when we started this podcast was to present a conversation that was raw and unedited. And we agreed that we would own the consequences of whatever it was that we might say that was silly or unrefined or not smart. Um, in this example that I'm about to give, I gave some identifying information about someone that I had a conversation with, and that's not fair to that individual because they didn't agree to that kind of, uh, those kind of consequences. So um, what I'm going to do here is give a summary without that identifying information about this conversation that they that I had with this individual. Uh, and then we're gonna jump right back into Brandon's response to that. So what I learned in conversation was that this person was a service member, served his country. He had a brother who served his country, uh, our country. And um, and he, this brother recently succumbed to uh, injuries that he sustained in his service. And so he was a casualty of war. And this is something that is still raw. This was something that just happened just a few weeks ago. And so when uh, this person is watching the news or watching football and sees these stories of these um, these football players who are, by all accounts, you know, living pretty comfortable lives, um, he sees in that a certain amount of privilege, I guess, and um, where there isn't any kind of risking life or limb uh, to kneel uh, and so also having to deal with the, the rawness of having recently lost a family member so um, there's a lot of pain there uh, especially when you're talking about around identity of having served your country uh, and so that was the the, the gist of what I was, I was getting into uh, and presenting to Brandon so we're going to jump right back into Brandon's response now thanks and see how his first reaction to the, to the kneeling would be, you know, disrespecting the flag or, or whatever the case is. And so I understand, like, I understand having your identity rooted in something and then feeling agitated from that. Um, and then so kind of humanizing that experience and, and again, saying neither good nor bad, like that feeling is neither good nor bad, but kind of look at it. And, and again, they're achieving their purpose. Colin Kaepernick is achieving his purpose. He's agitating us and making us think about it. But what's the appropriate response to that might be engaging with it and saying, okay, what are you trying to point to? What What is it that you are? And people might have trouble with this, but I think he is being courageous in doing that, regardless of whether you agree with the protests in itself or not. For a man to sit 
in uh, in a football arena with hundreds of thousands of people watching on TV um, and to take a stand that might be oppositional to what the owners of the team even want, the, the league commissioners, the people who are watching turning on the TV in the first place, like that is to me courageous outside of even um, what your what your view on the, the protest is. And Beto O'Rourke, uh, a Senate candidate in Texas, kind of alluded to this. He gave a really kind of thoughtful perspective on it and how, um, you know, some of our greatest um, agitators in history, Martin Luther King sitting in at, dining, at, uh, at the counters, uh, peaceful protests there, and then Rosa Parks, um, all mm-hmm. these people took a stance that agitated and they were courageous in that. And they achieved what they set out to do and that was to agitate and to make you reflect and have to confront it. And when newspapers printed photos of people being hosed on the street and beat Mm -hmm. by police, that forced America, who hadn't been exposed to that previously, to engage it and confront it. And um, Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I I think here's the the number one thing, or one of the number one things about fear, one of the number one things about fear is um, a lack of education around what's really going on. There's acknowledgement that has to happen. And then even when you acknowledge something, you don't always understand it. So you have to be curious about what's going on. And I, I think, um, you know, having people um, in, around to have their identity sort of tied to the flag, tied to their sacrifices, veterans, I totally understand that. And I think that what that's going on on the other side of that is that if you look at the media and the representation around this particular story, um, you know, we somehow managed to think that the only people who have paid a price to be in this country are the people that get sent out to go to war. And I'm not minimizing that sacrifice, but I'm also not going to minimize the civilian sacrifice of what it means to live in this country and, and to be patriotic. Or, I mean, hell, the African-American experience in this country um, has been fraught with suffering and fraught with pain. And I don't mean just 362 years ago, I mean, right now, I mean, 50 years ago, I mean, we've talked about this before, it's only been 50 years since King was assassinated. And, you know, where I went to college, you know, um, you know, I, I, I was talking to someone about this earlier in the week about Brown versus Board of Education was, you know, came down from the Supreme Court in 1954, you know, the integrated schools. And, uh, you know, I went to a college, you know, that you know, didn't have its first African-American students until 1968. I mean, there's a great deal of psychosis in what it takes to, um, uh, like, avoid these types of conversations. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that it takes a great deal of courage to break through that fear and to ask questions, to be curious. And what does engagement look like? Engagement really does look like saying, tell me again what you've experienced and let me really listen to you this time. Let me actually listen to you and say, oh, um, you're telling me that you were um, hosed and beaten or that you didn't have an opportunity because someone else got. And then um, when I listen to it, instead of just saying, oh, it's just, well, great. Thanks for telling me I'm going to watch football on Sundays because that is part of the privilege of the whole daggone thing is that you get to turn it off on Sundays for football. Mind you that the whole minefield of African-American athletes in this country is why an industry like national football, you know, is able to make as much money as it does is because you went and you got 
these black kids, you know, straight out of high school, didn't make them go to college, didn't actually work to educate them, but they were so talented. They were like, you know, like, like farmhands to your plantation, you know, basically saying, we're going to make master a whole lot more money, you know? And then as soon as that is threatened, then the master goes, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Yeah. Who, who do you think you are kneeling in my field? You better pick that cotton, <laughs> you know, you better, you better do it. You better do it when I tell you or else face the cracking of the whip. You face, you know, someone coming out and calling you a son of a bitch or threatening you with not having a job anymore. See, it looks different today than it looked 362 years ago. It looks a lot different, that punishment and being punitive or, or, or being penalized um, for someone like Colin Kaepernick. Now, mind you, I'll say it again. I am not defending Colin Kaepernick. I am not not defending him. I am talking about what it means to be curious about ourselves in the context of how we're reacting to these situations and a personal responsibility that we have to react not only appropriately, but for the common good. And if you're not a part of that and, and for the common good, this podcast probably isn't for you. But if you are listening and you are interested in being more curious about yourself and about the issues, and I think that, you know, Mark, for someone like you, probably wasn't I mean, how exposed was he to the African-American experience? Well, he was in Vietnam. There was a whole other thing blowing up in the country over here, you know, um, you know, with uh, race relations, you know. And so, yes, he was giving his life for his country. And so were other people that were actually on the ground here, giving their lives for their country and for their families and for their, for their children and for the next generation. That was happening, too. And I don't think we have to minimize one in order to be with the other. You also said something else, Mark, about the, like, spectrum that we tend to avoid as well of, of, of like, suffering. I, I don't know what's going on in the media around this Colin Kaepernick case. I think it's really, I think there's something really stupid going on. Um, either you're Colin Kaepernick um, on this ad or... The best thing you should do is then, you know, it should be a Marine veteran. What about putting a single mom on there? Yeah. You know, I said, can we have a little bit more creativity in, around around these like things? You know, I mean, I I think one of the hardest jobs in the world is to be a married or single woman, you know, and raising children. And um, does that make her any less of a patriot? Does it make her, does it mean that her suffering is less as a mother? you know, who's seen her, maybe seen her children, you know, sort of die from the opioid crisis or whatever it is that's going on in the country right now. Does it make her, her suffering and her patriotism any less significant because she didn't go into the military mm -hmm. or because she's not black? Absolutely not. And we would never say that. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. That's one of the things that like my biggest soapbox the last couple of years around, you saw a lot, um, not as much, but like first world problems. Um, I remember distinctly, I had a friend who was studying for the, the bar exam uh, after graduating uh, from law school, and she was experiencing so much distress and stress from the, the bar. And um, around that time, somebody posted on Facebook, oh, you're stressing over taking the bar exam, um, but there's people who are out there giving their lives, you know, confronting bullets and and uh, on the front line. And that really kind of hit her. And she was offended by it, one because she loves her the troops and and everything that they stand for and the bravery and the courage that they do exhibit and you know that's something I haven't done like I I go to the the Air and Space Museum here in DC and <laughs> what I'm confronted with is a mm. sense of patriotism and mm -hmm. gratitude for the sure. men and women who have done that and uh, because that's something I wasn't able to do yeah. and I'm afraid that when I get to sixty that I'm just going to look back on my life and feel regret for not doing that but mm -hmm. um so there's a, an immense amount of 
gratitude there for me and other people. But, um, and we kind of do this with, with other things. Oh, you, whatever pain you're experiencing, there's someone who's experiencing more pain than you. But I think that there's also kind of a point where wherever you're born, that pain is relative to your experience, you know, and it shouldn't, we shouldn't diminish someone's pain. We shouldn't call it a first world problem, kind of just tell them to get over it uh, because that there's someone experiencing a different kind of pain, right? And mm-hmm. and that's just, and again, that's kind of a soapbox, but um, I, I think that that kind of segues into now, what do we, what do we do with that tension? Because we're in a responsible way. How do we deal with that responsibly? Because there is a tension between fear and courage and it exerts its force on everybody in different ways, in different magnitudes, but it's all the same and it's how we respond to it that dictates, um, you know, whether it's right or wrong, right? We talked about it. it's not it's not right or wrong, the feeling of fear, the feeling of pain, but it's our response to that that dictates that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I fear is one of my favorite things to work through in people because we all have it it's the most it's one of the most humanizing things you know fear and pain and um you know people will you know come to me you know for counseling you know for addictions or um bad attitudes or manifestations you know um um of how they're treating their partners and things of that nature you know and what we generally get down to is is fear and um, and not just any kind of fear, but fear that is 100% tied to your identity. It's fear that is 100%. I, I, what, what is your self view? What is the perspective of myself and my assets? What I have? Am I valuable in the world? And where did I learn that I wasn't valuable? And, and then recognizing that my entire life <laughs> for a lot of us has, has been built on actions or activities trying to prove ourselves or prove other people wrong, <laughs> you know, and we are afraid that other people will find us out <laughs> and find out that on some level they'll think that we're frauds, they'll think that we're not the real deal or, or we're not. But working through that, you know, um, is the opposite pole of courage, right? And, you know, some people might say, you know, that like you can have one or the other, you know, fear or you have courage. And and I like to look at it more in the context of a battery, you know, like um, there's there's a positive side and there's a negative side to a battery. And when you activate um, both sides, you experience tension and it's a um, tension of energy that gets created. So let's let's say that courage is on the positive side of the battery and then fear is on the negative side of the battery now we don't just cut the battery in the middle and say let's just have the negative side and then throw it into the trash can and then expect the battery to work it doesn't so what do we use batteries for we use batteries to power things we use batteries to power our computers to um, power our microwaves to power things that we need and function and also just to power things that help create other things right so you need a battery meaning we need tension to create energy and fear posed with courage creates tension, a lot of tension. What am I going to choose? Am I going to choose fear or am I going to choose courage? And that struggle within the self creates a tension that then creates an energy that can be destructive in your life or in the life of a community or in the life of a church or home or whatever it might be but it can also create something wonderful. It can also create um, uh, choices that manifest greatness in us, um, that 
that uh, that manifests um, something extraordinary in us. Um, so how do you access it? We have to be willing to engage the tension in order to engage the energy, in order to experience the opportunity for creativity, the opportunity for innovation. And all in the center of that, you know what that tension is? That tension we call authenticity and vulnerability. And if you can do that, then you will experience the nuclear reactivity of destruction in your life or immense creativity and justice, I, I think, in our lives also. Yeah. I think there was a, a moment where I experienced this recently. I'd gone through several years of kind of complacency and not challenging myself. So a lot of this kind of conversation stems from my own experience and overcoming that fear and that complacency and leaning into discomfort. And one area that that really illuminated itself was last year. Well, one, just moving out of here without a job and knowing one person when I moved here, that was a sense of, uh, us leaning into fear, you know, where uh, I could have come out here and ultimately completely what I would consider a failure would be to not find a job or to not make friends and not find a church community and then just, you know, have to put my tail between my legs and go home. Mm. So like that was a huge fear for me. And then when I was job searching for several months, three months, I was coming up at this time last year uh, looking at zero dollars in my bank account. And so I was really that was my fear was, man, I'm going to have to go home now. And an opportunity presented itself after Hurricane Harvey hit in Texas to go back home and do some insurance adjustments work for adjusting and documenting storm damage. And I've never done construction at all in my life. I can barely operate a tape measure. And so there was a certain amount of fear there because I could have failed in that endeavor. I had to go home. I had to go run around a city in Houston that I'm not familiar with. And I had to go, um, I was averaging three hours of sleep a night and um, and encountering situations that I've never encountered before. Some really interesting people and walking around documenting things. And a woman had to follow me around with her broom to keep her <laughs> like pack of dogs off of me and mm -hmm. uh, walk into houses where the water line was, uh, you know, up to my shoulders and you could smell the, the mildew still and, and the humidity around that. And so it was very challenging, but I succeeded in that and then was able to come back home and continue my job search with a sense of, man, I conquered my fear and mm -hmm. I, I leaned into it and now I'm not as afraid anymore. And so things that I encounter, I can lean into more bravely and courageously. And so that's infused a lot of different areas of my life, not just in this race conversation, but in the workplace, in my home life, with my friends, in community, in my church. Like that has really infused my life with, with a lot of fear, flourishing where I might have been more timid and not engaged in, in some of those areas. So yeah. what does it look like to manage that fear responsibly in in those areas? Yeah. What does it look like to manage fear responsibly? I mean, I, uh, you know, like you, Mark, I mean, I think just pressing through so much personally, you know, has been um, what I call practicing courage. And, you know, we don't, turn a light switch on, just flip a switch, and then all of a sudden we're the most courageous versions of ourselves. Um, we're living life on a dimmer switch, <laughs> you know, and or on, or on a dial. And sometimes we turn things up and sometimes we turn things down. And, um, you know, when the more we practice something, the more we turn the dial up, you know. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, being, you know, in a I had a really bad friendship. I had a toxic friendship with a, with a particular person that taught me to not trust people 
And so how to practice was I had to practice putting myself in situations where I had to trust people, you know, where I was, I didn't have to, I was choosing to trust them. How? With the content of my life. I was choosing to trust people with the, the, the vulnerability of what's going on on the inside of me, what's going on on the inside of my life for fear of being rejected or being abandoned or all of those things were going on and then comparing myself to other people, all those things were going on and those things still happen. And so I continually have to practice being courageous by telling people what's going on in my relationship with them so that they have the opportunity to choose me. That is practicing courage. Um, so that's number one, practice courage. Um, uh, here are some ways in which you can practice courage. Um, sometimes, you know, we talk about traveling, um, talk about having new experiences. Um, sometimes it's about staying where you are. Um, sometimes it's about listening to your body and listening to your heart, listening to your soul, listening to God, um, who will sometimes tell you to stop running away from that pain, um, tell you to stop running away, um, from the thing that makes you feel bad. Um, which leads me into number two, you know, um, uh, you know, more than practicing courage, you know, in relationships, practicing courage with a professional, probably, you know, um, if you need to, um, if you have an addiction of some kind, you know, that's being fueled, you know, by that fear or pain avoidance. Um, some people are addicted to drugs, others are addicted to sex, others are addicted to relationships, others are totally enmeshed, you know, in other people's lives and, and totally afraid to live their own. And um, sometimes you need a little bit of extra help to get over the hump when you're feeling so crippled by fear. You need someone to help you just be there all the time and consistently there for you. So I would definitely consider that. Uh, I know I've done that and continue to do that today. Um, and uh, also practice that within the context of relationships and community. Um, show up and not be siloed, you know, making sure that I'm with people, um, you know, who can who regularly have context for me and, and, uh, and contact with me, even though I might feel uncomfortable at times, um, always showing up. And what that brings up is sometimes relational difficulties or identity difficulties and things like that. It's just important just to continue to press into that way. All of it can sort of be couched in this whole thing about practicing courage, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the reasons we're tying it into the race dialogue is because uh, our biases and our fear and pain and anxiety, those are all signals. And, and we tend to try to avoid those signals. And if we can learn to recognize and listen to what those signals are and point to times when we've said, okay, those signals don't dictate me. Those I don't follow those signals blindly. I listen to them and I learn what they're trying to tell me, but I'm not a slave to those mm -hmm. signals. I can decide what I do with those signals because I'm a, you know, an autonomous being with a brain. And so that's why doing these things, practicing fear, exercising fear, is good to kind of just getting to know your body a little bit better and what you're capable of doing and pushing those boundaries. And one reason people talk about traveling so much is because when you're confronted, when you, especially if you travel abroad, you're confronted with a bunch of different things, language barriers, um, having to navigate a new place. You know, I, I'm several times where I've traveled somewhere and I get off the plane and I have to figure out the, the public transit in that country. And I'm just, you feel this anxiety and this tension, but there's also some balanced with excitement and seeing new things and so that's why like some people who are well traveled tend to be really kind of open-minded because they're not only exposed to different ways that the people live but also because they've exercised their fear and they've learned to overcome how to navigate 
a new place. And then exercise is another one, a new hobby, um, running, not running from your fear, but actually picking up some running shoes, maybe Nikes <laughs> and going running. Maybe and Nikes. Maybe Nikes. <laughs> and, um, and there's a, a really neat program out there called Couch to 5K. It's an app uh, and it'll teach you if you if you're not even walking right now, like if you have no access to how to even begin an exercise program, this will teach you how to, what you need to do to, to get running. And running is really accessible because it's really low cost barrier to entry. Uh, and so it'll teach you how to literally start running. And then by the end of the program, you should be able to run like a 5K, three mile race by the end of it. And being able to overcome that, if you can do that, if you can tow the starting line at a race and experience that fear and lean into it, then the next time you encounter fear, you can say, oh, I recognize that feeling. And I remember the time that I overcame it and I wasn't harmed. I didn't experience harm. Uh, and it'll allow you to better overcome the next one. And then again and again and again and again, uh, because you're always going to encounter fear. Uh, it's never going to go away, but you're going to become better. Like you said, mm -hmm. Brandon, at, at learning how to overcome it. Um, so we're kind of coming up on time. I think we've given some really practical examples for how to overcome it. And we, we've tended to want to leave you with some calls to action uh, for, for what to do with this conversation. Uh, and so what we would like you to do is kind of just think about when the last time is that you did something that scared you. What is something in your life that you want to do but feel like fear is holding you back? And then Brandon, you had some, some questions of your own. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I hinted at this before, you know, is uh, making sure you have support, you know, to help you process and then to um, like evaluate, you know, what's going on in terms of fear. Um, I think it's easy to really presume or uh, give meaning to fear that isn't accurate. And so it's important to get a feedback loop going there um, when we're, whenever we're like experiencing it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think something else is to make a goal or choose a goal, a top line goal in your life right now, something that I call a game changer. Um, and what you do with the game changer is then you work backwards, you know, like this is the thing I want to do. If I want to make a hundred thousand dollars, you know, in the next year, you know, then these are the steps that I have to do in order to get to that, you know, and start pressing into those things, you know, um, step by step by step and really confronting fear, you know, um, uh, which we all you know, go through when it comes to things we want to do, but aren't there yet, don't know how to get there, you know? So what I tend to do is just start with one major goal, one major thing that I want to do, and then work backwards and create steps to get there. And I realize I have to confront a fair amount of fear in order to even get through the first, you know, step, you know? Um, maybe it's reading a book that I don't want to read. Maybe it's setting aside time, you know, to be with a friend or to meet with a mentor, something like that to expose something's going on in my life, you know? And, um, you know, some... Some some other things, you know, um, we'd like to leave you with are just some resources. And right now it's like all Brene Brown and um, Google her. Uh, you know, she has these books out. Um, uh, the Gifts of Imperfection is one. Daring Greatly, Rising Strong is another book. And then her most recent one is Braving the Wilderness. And um, in, in all of these, she talks about shame and fear and vulnerability and um, learning how to go through life and not presume upon other people things that are going or to project upon other people what's going on on the inside of us. And I think that's extraordinarily relevant, you know, to the conversation on race that we're having. But ultimately today and every other time you hear us talking, we're talking about personal responsibility. Um, and I think the layer under that also is about loving ourselves enough 
to not have to defend ourselves all the time and being willing to give our lives to other people in a way that helps us to see them for who they are, to see communities for who they are, to see the story of this world for the, for the way that it really is and how we can overcome things together. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think next episode, maybe, maybe not, might have to do with listening. You kind of have to still look through what the next episode might be. But you're talking about stories and seeing people for who they are. Maybe we talk about listening and what that actually means because we think that we're really good listeners. I go back and listen to the podcast and editing and I'm like, man, I didn't even hear Brandon say that. And we're standing right next to each other. He doesn't listen to me. I don't listen to him. I'm (laughs) like, man, I really could have engaged with that a little bit better. So we might talk about listening and what it actually means to be actively listening and to hear and to set aside our preconceived ideas about what we think they're saying versus what they actually are Mm -hmm. saying. So we might do that next time. Great. Uh, So thanks for tuning in to this one and we hope to catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, And then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.